Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? And so finding like these nuanced ways that we can approach humans, not in a way that we're justifying their behavior, but in a way that we're making space for their perspective and their, like, how challenging it is to shift deeply entrenched ideology. Um, And we're facing it at every level right now. Hi, welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. This podcast is for those who challenge the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And in this episode, we're talking to the wildly engaging and brilliant Angie Gunn. Angie's a therapist who co-owns a private practice and two digital companies which focus on providing avenues for healing trauma, expanding authenticity and vulnerability, and finding infinite pathways to pleasure and connection. She treats primarily LGBTQIPA plus kinky non-monogamous sex workers and sexual trauma survivor clients through the lens of intersectionality and social justice and a trauma-informed care. Angie is a fellow social worker and a queer, kinky, non-monogamous abuse survivor who's in a daily fight to balance personal and professional fulfillment and sexual expression. We have had Angie on before, and we are so excited to nerd out with Angie right now. Hi, Angie. Welcome back. Hi, folks. Thanks for having me. You are very, very welcome. I just want to note, um, you're not seeing this, but Angie is supporting an awesome fuchsia pink hairdo right now and she looks fabulous it's true just want to put it out there for the um, you can't see it i'm sad that you can't see it everyone but it is awesome it's awesome can see it though if you join us on wednesday the 22nd you can see angie and all her pink glory (laughs) exactly exactly angie you you are back uh, we invited you back because you're doing another workshop for us, uh, as Jackie said, on the uh, next Wednesday, July 22nd, on non-monogamy paradigm shift, challenging oppression in mononormative culture and frameworks. And we're going to look at oppression. We're going to look at um, how our traditional relationship structures, I guess, enable and sometimes incite um, oppression within our traditional relationships. Right. And I want to start the conversation with just talking about oppression as a concept, because I, I find that when we talk about oppression, it's often macro scale. Often we're talking about big systems and, organi- and, and governments. And, and we think about oppression that happens somewhere not here, not in the U.S. We think of oppression only happens in the third world countries or developing countries. And we don't think about it in sort of beyond that. So I want to start the conversation to really just talk about oppression. What is it? What does it look like? Um, where can it be seen? What are some of the signs? Thanks again for having me. And I think it's really important to have this conversation because a lot of us engage in what we identify as really meaningful, beautiful relationships for us. And yet we don't understand the ways in which um, how we're engaging in those relationships can be causing harm to others in our lives or to ourselves. And so I think this is a really important conversation to begin that unpacking of our own um, context in which we're loving and caring for each other. When I use the word oppression in this context, I'm really talking about the ways in which our identities And our understanding of other people's identities can sometimes conflict. And our awareness of the ways in which our identities are inherently a position of power. So when you're in a position of power based on gender, race, ability, credentials, class, language, 
color of your skin, religion, culture, um, when you're in the position of power over your partner, um, whether you intend to or not, there's inherently an oppression dynamic. And so our ability to just name that and call that out gives us the opportunity to have really meaningful, transparent conversations about how is my power impacting you in, in our relationship every single day? And how do we manage for that and be really concrete and clear about how to help everyone feel as equitable and supported as possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an interesting dynamic. When you put it that way, that's essentially any heteronormative relationship, right? Any heteronormative monogamous relationship off the mar- off the start, start line has oppression dynamics built into it. Correct. Yeah. So pretty much if you are heterosexual monogamous, you have two dynamics of power, one being monogamy and one being um, gender. Yeah. So can we unpack that a little bit? What, what can that look like in a relationship? Because here's what I'm hearing from you. Just because there's oppressive dynamics in play doesn't mean oppression really happens. Is that what I'm, is that what I'm hearing? You've already laid the, f- the foundation for it to be a possibility. And so I think mm-hmm. it's really the awareness of how do we um, manage for it, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think therapy is actually a great example. I was thinking of this example this week. that When you enter into a therapeutic relationship with your therapist, there's a, there's a dynamic of power, right? Your therapist has power in the situation. They have position power and class and identity power. Um, and, and role power. And so the therapist's ability to talk about that explicitly gives the client more empowerment to understand that they have rights and they have a say over their care. And I think the same thing happens in every relationship that we're in. Every single human you engage with on the street, in, in friendships, in relationships, there's a power dynamic. And our ability to call that out, whether we need to explicitly or implicitly, um, gives us a lot more flexibility to engage in it in an ethical way. I think what this speaks to is what's happening, what we're seeing right now in our nation. And you talked about uh, in the beginning, Effie, around that often we have seen things like oppression potentially is not here. And I think more and more we are all confronting the reality that we are oppressed in our in many ways within the, within the United States and, and around the world, and that that oppression to this point is systemic. That, that when we look at things like race and when we look at things like uh, discrimination and, 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 and all the forms that that exist, we think about it interpersonally. And we have been confronted over the past few decades to really understand how that exists intergenerationally within our systems and how we don't even realize we're so saturated in it, to your point, that we may not realize those, those power dynamics unless you are the oppressed. And oftentimes it is the role of the oppressed to inform the oppressor that they are being oppressed. And what it sounds like this is we're going to, we are in a moment of time within this quarantine where everyone is recognizing their role within the oppressed and oppressor framework. Yeah. And, and I think we're probably finding ourselves on both sides of that, right? Because the power dynamics depend on, on the other people. So I think sometimes you find where you might be the oppressed, there are dynamics where you are the oppressor. Exactly right. And why I think that it's a, we were fascinated to have this conversation with Angie, because I think we're seeing this, we're having these conversations as it relates to being in the workplace, as it relates to governmental rights, as it relates to so many different places, except what's happening in our homes mm-hmm. and understanding that as we are fighting in the streets and protesting in the streets, and we are fighting in our minds to really reconstruct how we are thinking about humanity and each other, that this is actually an opportunity, an invitation to think about how these dynamics are playing into our relationships. Absolutely. And in the, like literally in the home under our roofs, which I'm sort of really interested in kind of looking at, can we unpack that? Like what does, what, what can that look like? 
Certainly. And I think I just want to honor and say this in advance that um, I am a white person. And so my experience of oppression has been really specific to gender and um, being an abuse survivor and poverty. And so I don't know what it's like to be a person of color. I don't know what it's like to be um, a gender diverse person. I don't know what it's like to be differently abled. And so I want to just honor that my lens of, of oppression is theoretical and conceptual as well as my own experience. And I honor that I don't, I don't know what it's like to be in your body for those of you listening. And I really want to support you in finding your own path to understanding your relationship to oppression and reach out to those who you do feel kinship with in terms of that experience. So I think in terms of like what I notice it looks like, the biggest challenge is a lot of, I work, I do a lot of couples therapy and a lot of the conflict that couples come into my office with is often power related. So I'm always starting that conversation. How is power being wielded? How are you relating to power dynamics in your direct experience? And often we dismiss that as a lens because we want to focus on, oh, it's communication. It's difference of opinion. It's they're not understanding me. It's they don't really care about me. (laughs) Um, It's they they are looking for an out. And we blame a lot of other interpersonal traits on dynamics that are actually power related. And so our ability to take that pause and notice the ways in which, for example, the most really common example is cis-identified male clients coming in and really struggling with understanding, having empathy for their female part, cis-female partner's experience. I had this conversation this week where we literally said, you can't. You don't know what it's like to be in her body and in her experience. And, in, and even more so if the partner is gender diverse or a person of color, like you don't know what it's like to be in their experience. And so your pushback and your constant words to try to understand it and try to uh, manage it isn't working. And so part of it is that pause and silencing for a minute, silence the position, the person in the position of power, um, taking a moment of silence and quiet to sit with that understanding of, I don't really get it. I don't really know what it's like to be in your body and your experience. And also I want to figure out how do I make it easier for you to be in your experience while you're with me, <laughs> which is a really great strategy um, to shift out of this, this infighting that's usually tied to I'm personally feeling threatened because I don't know how to be, I don't actually know what it's like to be you and how you are interpreting my words um, based on your identities. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that when you sort of see a lot of infighting, what seems like interpersonal issues, it's actually an unresolved, unnamed power dynamic. And people are kind of struggling, but they're not able to sort of get to the, I guess, the sort of bird's eye view of what's going on and therefore understand actually it's like, it's a, it's a power struggle, not sort of the next level, which they are coming to you with, which is like, we just, we're not getting on. Correct. Yeah. And in the relationship between always understanding the ways in which identity is impacting the conversation. So literally every conversation with another human that you have that's conflictual, there's an identity trait, identity pieces of the puzzle that have to be named and acknowledged and supported. Um, and until we can do that, there's there's going to be a lot of difficulty around how do we find middle ground? Um, when we talk about communication, the first step is reflecting back, um, expressing understanding, and then trying to find a way through it. And you, there's really it's really hard to reflect back if you don't really understand. And so that first talking about identity traits gives a lot more power in that conversation to both people being acknowledged, like being able to say, you don't know what it's like, a really common example with um, folks that are gender diverse um, with a partner, you don't know what it's like to try to date as somebody who's not in the binary. Like you've, if you're a cisgender person, you have no idea what it's like to date or to look for partners or to try to engage with new people when you're not in the binary. And, and I've, I see this conflict a lot with, with, with clients that I work with who are struggling to um, communicate to their other partners why dating is hard or why they're struggling in non-monogamy because they um, are hitting these walls around oppression and harm and um, discrimination by folks they're trying to engage with. And so I think that's a really concrete example of the ability to talk about 
how is your identity impacting this every single tiny interaction you're having um, with this person as well as everyone around you? I wonder if what makes this also much more challenging and even insidious is that part of the power of oppression is that we self-oppress. So uh, Abram X. Kendi has this analogy around that concepts or, the, or, or these ideologies get rained down on us from the moment that we are born and that we don't have an umbrella, nor do we even know that we are wet. And so we internalize that women are a certain way, cis women, cis men are a certain way, that uh, by, based on class, based on race, and we self-govern and self-oppressed based on these ideas that we were born into and these structures. And so we may be in dynamics where we are playing something out that we don't realize that we our contribution to that role play of that dynamic based on some of the dogma that we have received over the course of our life. And so I've thought about that as it relates to I'm married to a woman. And so gender equity is not an issue in our relationship. But at some point when I transitioned into working in the corporate world to being an entrepreneur, there was a financial difference. And she was not necessarily doing anything to make me feel any sort of way about the fact that she was earning more money. I, on the other hand, felt so much either shame or guilt or felt things that I had to do more around the house. I had to make up for it. And that was noise that was rooted in my childhood and my upbringing and my culture that had nothing actually to do with my dynamic, but I was bringing that into the dynamic. And I was in some ways acting as if I was oppressed and I was denying myself buying things, for example, because of that dynamic. And so I think that that actually probably, I imagine makes it much more complicated is that both folks have a role potentially in this role play that you're describing now. Yeah, exactly. And the ways in which we, we we all have assumptions on both sides. So assumptions around like what being a trauma survivor in my relationships, I really struggle with um, the perception that I'm being oppressed sometimes when I'm not. So I'm, I'm with a really safe partner now, but um, I sometimes will still silence myself because I'm, I'm fearful of uh, a harmful reaction from this person that's not him, but it's my trauma history. It's my relationship to other men in power um, and the ways in which I show up in that dynamic is deeply impacted by the trauma I've experienced at every level of my life. So, I mean, in the context of monogamy, I think it's really important to start unpacking the ways in which the assumptions around why you're in this relationship, how you got here, um, what love means, what belonging means, um, what this partner means to you is a big deal. And one of the the conversations I have often is with um, heterosexual couples who struggle with like deconstructing monogamy and a lot of femidentified folks really struggle with, I'm supposed to have a man <laughs> that validates me, that approves me, that gives me an anchor in belonging and in meaning and in kind of a cultural context that I have this person that wants me, that's chosen me, that I am their everything, that I have um, this sort of like oneness that comes with this idealized romantic love. But our constructs around what might romantic love mean and what it is has only been around less than a hundred years. So one person as your everything, as your as friend, as your life mate, as your lover, as your parent, co-parenting model. That's a new model. That's a new concept. And yet there's so much, there's so much cultural pressure around, we must have that. And if you don't have that, you're bad or broken. And so inherently in that, whether you mean to or not, in choosing monogamy, you're choosing an oppressive dynamic that is dictated based on a cultural framework that maybe doesn't work for you. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that we... Like even though right now the dynamics that you've described, which is you need a man to validate you to make you feel whole, right? I would even argue that that's also a very, very contemporary way of looking because only 
I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, you needed a man to survive. Not even for like the self-actualization tip of the, the, the triangle, but more like to be able to have a bank account, to be able to walk down the street without being harassed, to be able to just like exist in the world. You had to be identified, you know, attached to your father and at some point to your husband. And that was really the only way that you had any kind of freedom, status, just existence, really. So I think in the last, you know, say 60 to 50, 50 to 60 years, we've idealized that, romanticized that. And now we sort of look at it as this, like, I'm whole, I mean, you know, as a part of a couple and I need a man to feel whole, but it comes from survival, right? It comes from a trauma, which is one of the things that we're going to talk about. It comes from intergenerational trauma, which is sort of the, the next piece in your, in your workshop that I really want to ask you about. Yeah. And in the workshop this week, we're going to talk about um, a little bit of the book, Marriage a Brief a History by Stephanie Kuntz. Um, and if you're okay with me reading a quote from it that I'm going to share. For most of history, it was inconceivable that people would choose their mates on the basis of something as fragile and irrational as love, and then focus all their sexual, intimate, and altruistic desires on the resulting marriage. So as you, as you said, most of history, relationships have not been about <laughs> love, romance, deep connection, and the idealization of that has, is continuing to cause us a lot of harm, especially when that consistently fails. And when your everything is tied up in this one person and that shifts or changes and for some reason, the devastation is, is so brutal. Why do you think that it is that we are, as, as a global and national community, really challenging the dynamics of race, challenging the dynamics of income inequality, of status within, you know, legal status within a country, lots of different things, but not necessarily are are challenging this this framework of monogamy and relationship, that there's so many places where we're saying, oh, this is archaic and doesn't work. And what I'm hearing and, and have understood from this, this our research is actually the status of mon- monogamy and marriage is archaic. However, this romanticized version of it is actually new. And yet people are still ascribing to that. So you're out in the street protesting around being oppressed and potentially choosing some form of oppression in terms of relationship dynamic or marriage structure. Right. And I think we'll talk about this maybe a little bit later and I'm happy to jump to it now, but I mean, I think this is very deeply wired neurobiologically in that we've, when you're moving towards what a detachment or strong connection with a partner means, we talked about this in our last um, workshop that we did here, you're seeking to have intense belonging and intense safety in this new connection. And some of this is translated from childhood and the need for um, another human to be your reflective surface, your place that you find an anchor to well-being and belonging. And so the idea of shifting your relationship structure is is threatening this deeply seated belief around who am I, where am I safe, where do I belong, and how do I fit in the global scheme of the world? And our ability to orient to like, I don't need a partner to be that. I don't need a husband. I don't need a, a, a certain kind of construct in my relationships to be okay in myself, to be okay in the universe. Our bodies kind of fight against that because we deeply want that belonging and that connection and community. And we don't have currently a very collectivist culture where we have community built into our lives. Um, so not only is the monogamy toxic, but so is this um, dyadic pairing, which isolates us from the rest of community. Without having other connections and other belonging, that partner becomes your only source. And so it's really hard to imagine if I lose this person, if I shift out of this structure, how am I connected to the rest of the world, to my universe, to my community, to myself? Yeah, for sure. Something that I say, I'm, I'm interested in what you think about this. Angie, something that I say is that, that pair bonding is evolutionary, but monogamy is as a cultural construct. That we are wired for pair bonding, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're monogamous. And I think people get confused with the two ideas. And I actually argue we're not necessarily bonded, we're not necessarily wired for pair bonding either. A really great book to read. I think we mentioned this last time too, is What Love Is and What It Could Be by Steph or by um Carrie Jenkins. And uh, in that book, she talks about we both we have we have two mechanisms. One is 
an evolutionary capacity to seek love and connection, as well as a social construct that's dictating how we relate to pair bonding. And so our, our current concept of pair bonding is a social construct more than it is evolutionary. And we're much more communalistic. Like we are, we are wired to have community and belonging more than we are to be biotic. Yeah. I know that the, the, the research says we can hold uh, like our optimum level of connections, like 150 connections, uh, live connections, any given time, which is essentially the sort of the nomadic uh, village model. Right. And, and we still, we still have the same wiring and the, and, and the neurology to hold on to about 150 live connections, meaningful connections that support our, our life, like as a, as a, as a sport network. Yeah. And ideally like we, we focus, we focus so much on one person as this like idealized pair bonding model that we've completely lost a lot of our interconnectedness as humans. And I think a lot of it was about oppression. And we think back to like the reason why the marriage structure was created. And Stephanie Coons talks about this in her book, um, Marriage Rape History. It was about power and about control by men. So if you knew who your daughter was marrying, where the land was going, where your money was going, and it was always one person and you could arrange it, you had a lot more control over what was going to happen with your wealth, um, what was going to happen with the land. And so our ability to use relationships and humans as trade goods and as positions of power completely eliminated our ability to have autonomy and expression in our relationships. And a lot of our current marriage underpinnings are still that. So whether we acknowledge it or not, it's a lot about power and money um, and control. And so if you're not able to to disconnect yourself from that in your love dynamic, it's a lot harder than idealize (laughs) this person, this thing um, represents so many different layers. And are you able to unpack that relationship to power? Mm -hmm. So are you suggesting that monogamy is inherently oppressive, therefore inherently wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I will not shame anyone else's relationship style in terms of your choices, but I think what the thing that's wrong about it is there's lack of consent in the model itself. And so if, if every single human as a child early on was given all of the models as choices, they were given lots of ways of showing up in the world and they had consent in how they engaged in it, there would be freedom to choose. Yes. I'm a person who wants to only one person and I want my one person to be my everything. Outside of the, I want to have an intense community. I want to have belonging, multiple people who meet different needs of mine. I want to have different kinds of partner structures, right? So we don't give people the choice. And it's really, right now, there's a little bit more cultural expression and exposure to different relationship structures, but it's still very, very minimal. When you've idealized every Disney princess waiting for your (laughs) prince to come find you, there's very little capacity to have volition in your choice around partnering later on. The idea of if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of part of the work that you do is around intergenerational trauma and oppression, intergenerational patterns. And if you've observed a particular dynamic in your household between your parents and your grandparents, then whether or not you in adulthood have a sense of consciousness and in your wise mind know that there are some of those dynamics that you want to avoid or do differently. Some of that now is built into your patterning, into your trauma responses, and it's going to take much more effort to override those instincts based on those observations when you were a child. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, growing up, having grown up in a really traumatized childhood situation, I learned that men were dangerous and bad from like early on in my life. Every single woman in my family history has had um, abusive relationships with men. And so my, like the deeply seated message in my body was you need them and <laughs> they're important and you must have one. And also they're going to harm you and you must accept that. And that that's part of the dynamic. This is, this is our cultural gift to you. <laughs> men will harm you. Um, and it's taken me 
two marriages and many other relationships in between to finally start to deconstruct my relationship to men in power and the ways in which I show up in subconscious dynamics with them. I'm immediately deferent, immediately um, seeking to meet their needs, immediately trying to feed them, <laughs> immediately trying to um, subvert my power and my well-being to make sure that I have belonging, make sure they want me, make sure that I continue to be chosen and kept safe by this illusion of men as the um, my anchor to well-being. When ultimately I was always more capable, more powerful, more intelligent, more more money earning than all of the men in my life. But the messaging was so deeply in, in, embedded in my neurobiology that there was no alternative path, um, despite being queer, despite being open and kinky, a, a daily battle to start rewiring my relationship to men in power. Um, and that's where we start to have freedom and opportunity to have actually choice in the way that you relate to love, belonging, and partnership. And it's really fucking hard because you are you are really, literally tearing at the threads of your identity and your family history around relationships and power. It's funny you should say that because I find that the women that I work with who are the most anxious around, like that they the, in the narrative say things like I need a man, like they want to be taken care of are some of the most capable people I've ever met. It's a, an interesting juxtaposition where there's the most anxiety around, you know, is this person going to take care of me? The more hypervigilance there is, the more capable these people show up, you know, way more capable than anybody else in their lives, to be honest. Right. And even to take, you know, to, to talk about how this noise seeps in outside of even gender identity. I have, I'm currently married to a woman and have a female partner and those dynamics continue to exist in my relationships rooted in that same learning around, I need to tone down who I am, or I need to give in, or I need to fawn, or I need to do whatever these things are in order to have partnership that I, I think I might've shared on the podcast at some point that I realized that I was serving my wife first. I was giving her the biggest portions and I was serving her and then my daughter, and then I would last. And that was absolutely an observation that I saw of my mother and my father, where she would serve him the best of the cuts of meat and the best of everything first, and then the children, and then she would eat last. And when I had that awareness that I was doing that, regardless of the fact that she was not a man, and that I was role modeling that to my daughter, who at some point would, was observing and would at some point model these behaviors also in her relationship, it shook me. And I think that I believed that when I wasn't with a man anymore, that some of those dynamics would wash away. And I, I didn't realize how embedded they were into my psyche, into my practice, into my patterning. Because I think at that point, they become a separ separated from the oppression. And now they were just, this is what belonging means. Yeah. And so now when you separate like belonging and, and love, the idea of like this, what it means to be deeply in love and connected to someone. And now it's, um, it's become almost mythical and it's no longer about the oppression that's actually fueling it. And so if we don't take that pause and say like, then that's why a lot, a lot of people going back to your original question, why they don't challenge this dynamic is because they don't want to challenge love. <laughs> they don't want to challenge this thing that's beautiful and amazing and we should do anything for love. And, and this is what you do and you sacrifice and you, you know, and like all of our sort of visions of what that means, but oftentimes that's abusive dynamics. And until we can move out of that belief that love trumps all, <laughs> And that somehow this idea of like what love me, love and belonging means is this butterfly floaty, um, anxious sensation. I mean, at one point I realized I was having that sensation a lot, the like butterflies in your stomach. And I realized that was trauma, like that, that activation, that like discomfort, that like agitation in my stomach was my nervous system shutting down and reacting to my sacrificing of my well-being for this person. And it wasn't love. And our ability to disconnect what that looks like, what arousal, what belonging, what trust looks like, and what safety looks like. Um, that's where we're really fighting the oppression dynamic in our love relationships. And also, I think knowing that 
just because you love somebody doesn't mean you can be in a relationship with them. The relationship dynamics, you can love somebody and still be in an oppressor situation. You can still have the power dynamics. Just because there's love doesn't mean suddenly the power dynamics evaporates or that you can automatically be compatible with somebody and you can be in a relationship with them. Like These things are separate tracks that you need to examine and, and reflect upon. Or that love justifies the shitty behavior that, you know, I think a lot of people will use the word love to justify like, oh, this person loves me and they're just, they made a mistake or they're, they didn't mean that, or they're just, they're having a hard time. That's just a man. Like often we'll hear that, like, oh, this, that's just, you know, they're not good at feelings. And like, that's not okay. Like on, on no circumstances does love ever justify abusive behavior, manipulative behavior, coercion, control, things that cause you harm. And also it just for you, I think knowing what love looks like when we come from trauma, love just looks traumatized you know love looks like trauma and I think when those things emerge I think that's when it becomes really really confusing I mean I have a similar I have a trauma history it took me a long time to be able to separate trauma from love and and to be able to understand oh like my idea of love my initial ideas of love has a lot of trauma built into it so I had to kind of deconstruct it all and rebuild it and redefine love for me and for me what I understand love now is very different than the sensations that come up in my body so there's like a dissonance that I, I work through every time when my body feels that she's in love my brain now goes something is wrong like examine this so like that's something that I have to work on regularly. Anytime that I'm like, oh, I'm in love and in that sort of like new relationship energy, floatiness, that's for me a precursor. That's like, that's, an, that's a note for me to be like, you need to look at this. Something is, something is not right. It doesn't always mean that if something is wrong, but it's like a, an alarm for me to examine what's going on, to slow down, to check in more, to maybe um, consult with people who know me so that I don't lose track on, like, of myself and my identity. And, you know, so I need to like leave beacons. As soon as I feel that in my body, I had like leave beacons around. So I, I think as we think about the fact that we have been saturated and wet to the bone with these ideas around what love is, what partnership is, what marriage and relationship looks like, both of which are a result of some of our neurobiology around needing connection and then the societal message around what that connection, what form that connection can take place. And so then we enter into these dynamics where there may be an imbalance of power and let's say in the best case scenario, someone does not know that they are giving away their power, nor does the other person know that they are taking a power. And we are in, we are, we're, in, we're there now. And again, we may have these awarenesses that, that there is inequity in the world and we are fighting against those things. And perhaps you're listening to this podcast and realizing that there's inequity now in your relationships. So what next? How do we, how do we work together to, with our partners within our communities to fight that oppression? I think this is a strategy that I'm using. Every single human I'm engaging with, I just acknowledge my power upfront in the conversation. So, you know, that's one of the first converse, first things we talk about. Like, hey, I acknowledge these parts of my identities. I acknowledge my whiteness. I acknowledge my gender. I acknowledge my position power. I acknowledge my class. Um, and I acknowledge my ability and the ways in which those privileged identities will make it harder for me to hear and understand you. Will make it harder for me to get your perspective. Will make it harder for you to have your voice with me. Will make it harder for you to show up fully in the way that I want you to show up. And so my ability to immediately give open that door, <laughs> I'm already giving them permission to call into that space, their relationship to any feelings they were already having around that, any any worries, any uncertainty, any oh this is the, this is my tendency, and I and I want to invite them to share with me what happens when you're in these kind of dynamics with other people, like what's happened previously when you were working with a boss, a therapist, a partner um, who had differential power from you, 
Um, and how can I help manage for that? How can I help give me more space? One of the challenges inherent in that strategy, though, is that they have to have their voice. And so I really want to call all of you to practice having your voice with your friends and with other people in your life who you have equal power with. So you begin to know what it feels like to say like, yeah, I'm a little worried about this thing. I'm, I'm concerned about the way that I typically will defer to someone with this kind of status. And, and your ability to start practicing that's really important. Um, so assumption is they have their voice. The other assumption that sometimes this goes wrong in that model is I'm asking them to challenge me and call me out on ways in which I might be causing harm, which is also terrifying. And so um, I need to ensure that there will be no punishment, no manipulation, no coercion, no harm that will come to them for challenging my power. And I think that's really hard for folks to do because sometimes there is, right? Online dating is one of the most entertaining power dynamic examples that we will ever see. You know, just talking to dudes online, I, I recently asked the question on my dating profile, um, how are you dismantling the patriarchy as my opening line? And if, and if dudes didn't answer the question, I wouldn't talk with them. And you, you can imagine how many <laughs> really ridiculous answers I got um, to that question. A lot of it was, it was, it was an assault to them. They were immediately being challenged in their position of power and their role as a part of the patriarchy. And so their inability to handle that being challenged meant it, they were defensive, meant they were shutting down, meant they were argumentative, meant they were like questioning my identity. And so I think if you're not ready to hear the pushback against your, your, your dynamics of power, you're not ready to be in relationships with people that are differential power dynamics than you, which sucks because <laughs> it's, you're going to cause harm. And so like that ability to know that I inherently by my inability to do this work, to acknowledge my, my relationship to power, I'm harming those around me. It's really painful and it's a lot to, a lot to carry, but it is the work that we're asking every single human to do right now in the world. And there's a difference that Brene Brown talks about this as it relates to shame, that there's a difference in you feeling shame because you realize that you have been oppressing or that you are leveraging your power and being shamed. And that when someone shows up as defensive, it is because they believe that you are trying to shame them because they are experiencing shame, as opposed to realize that they are experiencing shame because they are being held accountable to the fact that they have power and that they are not recognizing the impact of their power. And so I think naming that distinction that as the person who is hearing the feedback, you will feel uncomfortable. And that discomfort not only belongs to you, but is actually a significant part of your growth and your healing. And to respond to that discomfort with frustration or with defensiveness means that you're missing the opportunity to learn the lesson and instead pushing back on the person who is trying to help you be a better person. And ultimately, it's not that person's job. So like we're, we're facing a lot of cha challenges right now where the oppressed are the ones doing the work. And that's not that's not the place where it needs to be happening. They're already suffering from the trauma of oppression. And so um, those who are in positions of power need to be the ones to initiate those conversations and need to be the ones to create that space and to be engaging in the self-work. And it's really hard. And there's lots of strategies for that out there. But really, like in your individual interpersonal relationships, it's how do you have that conversation and hold yourself accountable to take the feedback well and to get help from other people in your life when you're hearing feedback that's hard? That's kind of where I'm a little stuck, right? I feel like what you're describing is like near ninja, ninja level self-awareness, right? You need to like be aware of your privilege, be aware that you're harming people, be aware of the power dynamics of the people around you, um, have good communication, have access to good communication, practice around it, know your words, be emotionally regulated enough to have open conversations, be okay to invite people into conversation and be okay if they're not okay with the conversation. I feel like the whole thing is, it's okay for us. We live and breathe this stuff. You know, this is where we live, where we do all our work and this is how we're going to show up in the world. But I think for, when I say an average person, I don't mean, I don't mean a derogatory, but somebody who doesn't live, breathe and like, and exist in this space. I just feel like it's such 
you know, so high level, where do we get people to begin? Like, what's the first step to even start, to even come into an awareness of your power? Especially if you, you know, this is the, not all men, right? Is, is like the pushback, right? It's this shitty pushback that we get, not all men. When men are saying, not all men, or they're saying they have an understanding of privilege, which is like, you know, um, they look at someone like Jeff Bezos as a, as a privileged person and they're like, that's not where I'm at. I'm struggling with my, you know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. So where's my privilege? Right. These are the, these are the rhetorics that we hear in everyday conversations. So how do we get somebody from, from over there to like, what is the big, the first step they can do towards like even a vague understanding of power dynamics as a whole? Yeah. I mean, in the, in the workshop this coming week, I'll share a couple of images and slides that'll just be like a little chart that breaks down. These are the levels of power. Um, so literally it's just like a little figure that shows these are the ways that you can start thinking about your identities. And I think I got a piece of paper and write down a list. These are the identities that I hold. This is who I am. And your awareness of the, your relationship to your identity is a really good starting point. I know that I'm I'm in considered upper middle class. If you think about class issues, I'm, I know that I'm um, come from a pretty like well off, established, healthy family. I know that I you know so your relationship to self awareness is going to be the first starting point. And then when you are engaging with other people, see if you can take a moment, just even like twenty seconds at the beginning of that conversation, and think, what are my identities that are different from this person's? What are, the, what are their identities that I could probably imagine just based on my few minutes of interaction with them? Then that's, that's the starting point, right? And then maybe ask that question. Hey, I see that we have these differences. <laughs> how, how, how does that play out for you in our conversation? So it doesn't have to be an immediate like attack. It can just be like, hey, I get this. Like, I, would be, I would be floored if a, if a new man I was talking to just said that out loud. Hey, I know that I'm, I'm a man, a cis man, and you're a cis woman. And um, I wonder like, how our differences play out in our conversation. Super simple, really basic, just noticing the differences and your relationship to comfortability with that conversation is going to build a bridge for them to feel more comfortable giving other kinds of feedback and conversation with you. I think that's really important to, to underscore this idea of understanding the difference. Often when we, when we have this conversation as it relates to race, we'll hear people who say, well, I don't see color. And it is a very well-intentioned statement to say, I see you and your humanity. The challenge is when you don't see color, you don't see part of who I am. You don't see my culture. You don't see my tradition. You don't see my oppression. And we are not asking folks to, to see everyone as the same because we are actually not the same. In fact, you're, we're encouraging folks to see and name the difference and say, and, it, and we often use the example of, you know, white privileged men, but it is about being, you know, uh, having, being cisgender. It's about having ability or inability in terms of uh, your movement. It's about having privilege and status in terms of employment or housing. Like there's so many ways in which we can have and leverage our power and understanding those differences sounds like it's one of the first steps. And so I appreciate you saying that because I think that's really important. I think the others is understanding that our control actually limits us. When we have the conversation and say that it is the role of the oppressor to change and not the role of the oppressed if I was someone who was the oppressor, I would say, well, why? <laughs> why give up my power? Why change anything? And the reality is any of us who are control freaks know that being in power and having control actually limits us. It limits what we are possible, uh, what we are capable of. It limits our impact. It limits our relationships and really evaluating what does holding on to this power actually give me, I imagine, as part of the process as well. Certainly. And I think I, I love that point. And it's not only limiting limiting us in our scope of our impact, but also limiting us in 
we don't know what that other human has to offer. And I think the more we're digging into challenging racial oppression, we're realizing how many beautiful, powerful um, black and brown voices that we've missed historically, beautiful inventions, beautiful impact on culture and history and identity that we have silenced and we have forgotten and we have stolen directly. And I think um, there's so much amazing things happening in diverse perspectives on situations, on problem solving. Um, I really love um, Adrian Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategies, and the ways in which like the strategies are coming from within the communities that we are engaging with and from the people who are seeking to make change. And the top-down white supremacist approach isn't working and has never really worked. A lot of our current social structures are broken um, because we've done these, we've used these models for individuation and um, isolation and dyadic pairing that hasn't actually served us as humans. Um, and now we're pushing back and other voices are really important and our ability to like make room for them in our relationships in every single aspect of our lives gives us better well-being as a whole and as a community. Always. I'm curious, the more I hear about so how everything is anchored in power dynamics, I'm also wondering how enmeshment, which is something that I see often, and I'm sure you do as well with couples, how enmeshment actually probably gets in the way of noticing the power dynamics. I know that I have a personal experience with this, with a, a partner who is a cis white male, privileged, upper middle class background, and actually um, very aware of his privilege and did step down and has a habit of stepping down, giving space, offering space that, that he occupies to people who he can be an oppressor to, right? But because of the enmeshment that we were, we were struggling with at the time, that kind of seeped into my identity. And, and I'm not a cis white male. I'm, a, I'm an immigrant woman and I need that space. Like I need to take up this, that space that's given. And for, for him, it was because he was giving up the space that I had to give up the space too because, because of the enmeshment that he felt. So because he sort of engulfed me into his identity of this like privileged person and therefore it was expected that I also gave up my space I also shut up and listened and 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 kind of like lost my own individual identity and even it was interesting to me that in an effort not to oppress others he inadvertently was oppressing me for a hot second you know we, we kind of unpacked this and he came to an understanding but it's just the reason I'm telling this story is because it's so easy to get caught up when you're trying to do one, the right thing in one place and if you don't pay attention to everything including those who are closest to you, it's so easy to slip into the place of an oppressor without even realizing. I think that speaks a lot to what I see as like performative managing of our oppression. And so like the, the ways in which someone else is doing it. And so that's how we should do it. Or our partner is engaging in this and that this is how we, you know, maintain belonging again. But instead of our ability to hold our power and always be critical in our, in our analysis of how am I engaging in the system? How are they engaging in the system? How is the system, the system functioning as a whole? And calling it out when we, when we can, if it's close to us um, and, and challenging the people in our lives to continuously be aware of the ways in which those dynamics play out. And at the same time, owning our own ability to A, know our limits, <laughs> um, know your own capacity, but also know when, yeah, you're being silenced as well. Because oppression is happening at every single level. And so I think a lot of white people right now are struggling with the ways in which they've also faced oppression and they're, they're feeling silenced. And it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to take a break and, and give space for um, black and brown lives who've had, you know, a, a millennia of silencing. But it doesn't mean that your oppression or your harm isn't valid. Um, it just means that we're, we're shifting out of our relationship to oppression from one person is oppression of everyone. And, um, and our ability to make space for all the different varieties and the way it's being expressed is going to help all of us eventually. 
And I think, I think to your, your point, it speaks back to what Angie was saying around recognizing difference, that when we are in relationship, particularly long-term relationship, you've often said that we end up cashing someone, right? That we, in our mind, see them as something and we don't notice a haircut or we don't notice a change in their makeup because we see them as the same. And particularly when this enmeshment takes place, not only do we see them as the same, but we see them as part of ourselves. In my neighborhood, they were organizing a Black Lives Matter march and there was some conversation around it in the you know neighborhood chats around like the white families and the white communities. And there was some like uproar around that. And when my wife, who is white, was having the conversation with me in that conversation, I recognized that enmeshment because she didn't realize I am not white. And I actually was also offended. And she was, she was talking about the other, not in a bad way, but she was talking about the black and brown people in our community. And I was like, well, there's actually a brown person in your home. <laughs> that's, that's me. And, and again, to your point, there was, there was absolutely nothing about that that, was, that had malintent. But I think that she saw us as the same in that moment and did not see my difference and did not see her privilege as someone who was white and did not see her identification to those white folks and how that 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 didn't represent me. And so I think, to, again, going back to what Angie was saying, is continuing to challenge ourselves to see difference in a good way, to see difference as with curiosity. Mm-hmm, exactly. Funny how we don't always end up here, but it, it is it is <laughs> really, I think, really, if in doubt, be curious. I think I, that's kind of where I land with most of these things. You know, gentle curiosity, you also don't want to kind of be aggressive with your curiosity and kind of bombard people with questions and put them in a position that they have to be educators for you or they have to be the people that, you know, give you all the answers. But with a gentle, authentic curiosity to just, with the intention to meet them where they're at, to learn what's going on with them, um, I feel like that's kind of a like a default position. I don't know how you feel about that, Angie. Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, curiosity can, can be a double-edged sword. So I want to just, you know, give some caveat to that word because... There's also moments where like, it's not our fucking business. Mm-hmm. So like sometimes there's differences that like, it doesn't actually matter what country you came from or what your genitals look like. Like, I don't need to know that. And then my curiosity can cause you harm. And so our ability to know when is my curiosity about our differences going to help us build bridges around oppression? And when is my curiosity causing you harm? It's a beautiful point. Yeah. There's that space where we take a pause and say, why do I need to know this information? And what is this about for me? And how am I trying to connect to this human? And so I'm going to be at some point sexual with them. It may be relevant to talk about genitals and pleasure and expression and identity when you're feeling really safe and connected. But if not, it does not matter to me. (laughs) It should not matter in our conversation um, what's happening in your genitals. And so um, a really concrete example, but, and it doesn't matter what country you're from. Let's just, let's just, we can can throw that out there too. It matters in the sense that if you want to share that information as a way of supporting a connection with me, but if you're a stranger on the street, I don't need to know where you're from. I need to know how do I treat you with care and respect? How do I honor your voice? How do I give you space to be in your power in this moment, regardless of where you're from? Yeah, it's really interesting to me. I have to think about that for a second because as as somebody who's, you know, ultimately identifies as an earthling, I just happen to have lived in many, many countries around the world for a long time. And as a part of that bouncing around and kind of, you know, I've, I've immigrated twice. I've lived in all the continents for long periods of time and exposed, you know, been exposed to, to many, many different cultures. And the curiosity around who are you, where do you come from has always been a point of connection. Like, how do I connect with you? And to this day, I ask people where they're from because to me, that's a point of connection. So I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around, like at what point it becomes intrusive and at what point is it's a connection to sort of meet people where they're at. 
I mean, I think it's about safety. So it's about that neurobiology again. Like if I feel regulated in this relationship, like we've gotten to know each other, we trust each other. I know your intentions. I know what you want in terms of our connection. Um, then like, yeah, I want to share where I'm from and I want to share my experiences and I want to, we've built trust in order for me to feel transparent in my experiences. But if it's, you're a stranger on the street and you just met me and you're curious about, you know, my hairstyle or about my dress or something about me and that you just want to be in conversation, it, that's maybe not safe. And so your, your ability to know your power in that dynamic, that you are a person who could be causing me harm based on your, for example. So what I hear, it's about intentionality and context. Right. Awareness around power, what I'm hearing. I, I, maybe it's different that I approach you, Jackie, as a, you know, maybe woman to woman is a different experience than if a, if a guy just approached you. And, you know, if I approached you and asked you about your nail, nail color is different than a guy approaching you out of nowhere and asking about nail color, I guess. Is that essentially what we're saying? Right. And, and not acknowledgement of power. So again, it's that the thing that I think especially white folks right now need to be doing is every single conversation you're having, how is my power impacting this conversation? How does my power impact how this person feels comfortable in their own expression? Is there any threat they're feeling? Is there any way in which I could cause them harm right now? Right now? And our ability to just to own that and, 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 and be silent. And even defining out harm, because I think sometimes that language may sound like, because again, someone may not have the intention to cause harm. They may not understand that something is harm, but if someone feels othered. So if we are asking about the, you know, the, the bodies and the genitals of someone who identifies as trans, right. And, and that is to your point, that is not, that is not our business to ask whether or not there's curiosity there uh, or to your point, I feel around, if we're asking about where someone may come from, if there is concern around status in this country, Country, you're concerned around something else because of, or because of race or because of that, that may cause harm in that it causes fear and that it causes someone to feel othered and that it causes, brings up some past trauma. So even though the intention is not harm, that's what that may result in. Right. I think this is the whole, the intention versus impact dilemma, right? You might have a certain intention, but you might end up having an impact that you didn't intend. And, and it's just, you just can't control that. I think we're going to bring it back to like relational dating. I think there's a lot of the space where like in our attempt to get to know each other and do the kind of typical like early dating screening stuff, we cause a ton of harm. And we do a lot of like, uh, like microaggressions and dating is one of the most prominent things I hear from clients that are marginalized um, because hum- a human's attempt to like, I've, I've got to figure out if you may, you meet all of my checklist things about whether we're compatible, about whether you're going to be somebody I want to spend time with is a lot about power. And is a lot about our relationship to finding people that meet some arbitrary criteria versus like being a whole person. And so we want to move towards how do we let people be whole people and our engagement with them and, and organically grow and be and um, have love be opportunities for us to support them in their wholeness. We want every single human we engage with to be as bright and shiny and fucking brilliant as they can be. And how are we each giving them acknowledging our power and owning it so that we can give them space to be that? Yeah, it's huge, right? And it's, it's huge. And I again, I go back to the same thing, which is it's just a lot of awareness and knowledge and practice to, to get to that place. And then and also, I just want to talk about the other side for a second, which is one of the things that you said is it depends on people, but we're assuming that people have their voice, right? So what if you don't have your voice? What if you don't even realize you're oppressed and maybe you're listening to this conversation and you're getting glimpses of it and you're like, wow, I hadn't even considered that I silenced myself, that I hadn't even considered, you know, I don't feed myself before I feed my family. I hadn't even considered that there are, you know, every time I go on a dating app, there are microaggressions and now I'm coming to an awareness of that and I want to dynamically change things. What are the options for people on the oppressed side? that may not have a voice? Find the people you have a voice with first. I see this conflict actually a lot lately with white folks who are like, why do we need 
um, BIPOC-only spaces? Why do we need BIPOC-only sex parties? Why do we need BIPOC-only groups on Facebook and, and, and everywhere? And like, they need to be in a place they can feel fully seen where there's no oppression. <laughs> they, need to, they need to have spaces where they get to completely be in themselves and be in their own experience of whatever feeling or an anger or rage or expression they're needing to have where they're not going to be worried about any kind of harm that's going to come from another voice. And so find your people, find those spaces where you have that, that ability to be that expressive. Find therapists that are also like-minded and can help, can really understand where you're coming from and can support you in that. And practice, practice having your voice. There's a lot of like interesting ways I've heard of folks doing that. I like dating apps for that reason. You can, you can be super assertive with a stranger and then delete them if they're not responsive. <laughs> and it gives you a place to start. What does it feel like to like demand that someone show up for me fully and, and give them that space to try? And then it, there's no harm that's been done. There, there, there may be harm in terms of some emotion, but you can quickly erase that and move towards a ne- the next interaction or towards someone who's going to be more supportive. Um, I find ways that you can practice in community. So having like allies or accomplices that are um, maybe are still in a position of power, but are willing to acknowledge their power and using those people as practice points to start engaging in, is it okay if I say this to a partner? Is it okay if I challenge this conversation? And how might I do this? Or how can I do this in a way that's going to be really effective? So you're really finding a lot of opportunities to start building your network of humans who let you be bright and shiny and supportive of you in all the ways that you want to be, and who will then be your anchor when a partner doesn't work out, or there's harm that's coming toward that you have people to go back and help feel safe with. Right. I think that's also key. As you're doing that, you're building community, you're building a support network so that each of these connections don't have as much gravity and therefore um, not so important that you have to abandon yourself for the sake of this one connection that is going to be everything for you. So I think as you're practicing an awesome sort of side product of that, or actually kind of a part of that is to build build a community and a support network. And the more isolated you are, the more harm that is done. So I think really knowing that like if you are right now in a situation where you're experiencing oppression and you're isolated, find somebody, find somebody on the internet, <laughs> find find someone somewhere who who gets you and gets your experience and can hold that. Um, send me an email and I'll help you. It's really, really key to to not be alone in the oppression. And, and it's, it's so much harder when you're isolated to find a path out. Um, and as someone who stayed in abusive relationships way too long and has been in many dynamics where harm was done, it's really terrifying to find a way out because it means this destabilizing of your center, which has become this person. Um, and that's not your fault. That's oppression's fault. <laughs> and I want to give you permission to forgive yourself, give yourself lots of love and care and honor that you deserve to feel safe and fully expressive in your relationships. We started off the conversation by talking about how this these concepts really interact with our ideas around consensual non-monogamy and pushing back on current structures and dynamics. And the majority of the conversation, frankly, can exist within a monogamous relationship, right? These are these are ideas and concepts and patterns and, and behaviors that we should be thinking about within a monogamous construct. I'm wondering if there is anything that either is unique or different to think about within this conversation as it relates specifically to being open and being engaged in other conversations. Certainly that means more people to get to know and see their difference and and manage these power dynamics with. Um, And we've talked about partner privilege and the power dynamics that come when you, when, when there are secondaries or auxiliary partners. And so we've had those conversations. So I'm wondering how all these things connect, or if you can connect some of the dots between this conversation and consensual non-monogamy. I think when I do this, do this workshop specifically around non-monogamy, I talk a lot about the ways in which autonomy and personal well-being are anchored in self-awareness and clear communication of your wants and needs. And so your relationship to keeping your power is a big part of how you relate to people in general. And it's going to be even more important when there's multiple people involved. 
So this includes a lot more clear communication. I, I often really like the principles that my um, a good friend of mine, Phoenix, has developed. And she's working on a relation of anarchy book right now. That'll be great when she finishes it. She has a whole list of principles that relate to specifically to anarchy, but I think they also apply to relationships in general. And a lot of it is about moving towards a whole person perspective where all the parts of you get to remain, where there's acceptance of your partner's boundaries, um, there's personal responsibility, and there's continuously addressing assumptions and expectations. And so in non-monogamy, there's these little openings where we've broken this paradigm. <laughs> we've eliminated the idea that one person is your everything and one person meets all of these expectations and standards. What do you actually get to build? And it's, it's endless. It's limitless. And you get to create that together. And the ability to have space for organic growth, for constantly growing and changing and letting yourselves be whole people. And it's okay if your partnerships shift and change because of that. Um, it's really transformative and gives you so much more space for having the types of engagements that really nourish all the parts of you. Absolutely. I think it's also just a word of caution here, right? Here's the, here's what I want to avoid. I want to avoid this idea that, okay, monogamy is oppressive by nature, therefore no more monogamy. And if we're not monogamous, therefore there's no oppression, right? Because oppression exists in non-monogamous relationships too. The power dynamics can be, can be brutal, uh, especially if you're dealing with very strict hierarchy, primary, secondary relationships. I've seen oppression thrive in non-monogamous relationships as much as monogamous relationships. So I think I want to just take a moment to, to address that and say, just because you're no longer monogamous or you're now in an open relationship, oppression is now eradicated from your relationships. I think that's really important to mention. Certainly, because you're still humans and you're still, there's still power dynamics in every human connection. And so um, what, no matter your relationship structure, we're saying that monogamy in terms of its structure has history, has roots in oppression. But every single relationship we engage in can still have roots in oppression because we're still people. <laughs> and we as humans are have been in these dynamics of power for a millennia. So when I talk to non-monogamous couples about or, or groupings about what it can be like, it's really about that continually, continuously owning your power, owning the relationship as a entity that's constantly collaborative. And so it's this thing that you are both maintaining as much equity as you can, where you each have the same amount of voice in shifting and changing it. This can be in terms of agreements. This can be in terms of um, how you relate to other partnerships. Um, is there any control dynamics happening in the dynamic? And how do you eliminate that? Um, which is really hard to name because we don't want to believe that we're controlling our partners. Um, but if you are setting rules that are dictating how they show up with other partnerships, how they engage with other people, um, if you are creating Usually you call them boundaries, but they're not. They're actually rules. If you're creating rules that limit or control their engagement with another person, that's oppression. And so no matter what gender or identity you are, there's still lots of oppression that comes out of fear, comes out of jealousy, comes out of our own inability to manage our emotions. And so your emotions are yours to manage and are yours alone. And our partners can sort of help us. They can be a pathway to healing for us. Um, but ultimately, they're ours to manage. And so if my emotions are dictating how I show up in this partnership in a way that is controlling or harmful, that's a place for some work to be done. And you kind of have to start from a place of like noticing that about yourself. Um, and, and I would also go as far as to say that if you are in a position where you are exerting power dynamics or oppressing or driven by jealousy and, and in that situation, that that comes from fear too. Like there's something in it, it is a defense mechanism to your own fear and your own insecurity. And that your response to that is a, is a maladaptive strategy of oppressing the other person rather than resolving the conflict. The same, the same defense that we talked about with men early on in terms of like when you're, they're being attacked around oppression, the same thing happens in non-monogamy where we're, we're, we're always trying to figure out how to stay safe and connected and we'll have belonging and expression. And, and the minute we feel it's threatened, we will do all kinds of manipulative, coercive, controlling things to keep ourselves safe. Um, and every single person is capable of that, regardless of your identity. 
And so our ability to acknowledge that, to own that, um, I think that's one of, that's where the really complexity comes in in these relationships is when there's manipulation or control happening on, on a more oppressed identity side. And there's a question around how did that power dynamic in the first place create that dynamic where there's now there's manipulation being used as a counterattack to the power. And so there's this complexity around we're all wielding power and just finding our ways to do so. And non-monogamy gives you so many more opportunities to wield power. I think that's really important to highlight that we all have the ability, that we are all oppressed and we all oppress, that we all are doing, we are all, to your point, finding ways to wield our power and to and to maintain some maintain some sort of status and to because it, we are triggered by the fear of of either safety or lack thereof or scarcity and that this is about a journey and so even even as we're having these conversations i'm thinking of all the ways in which i am currently in this moment need to be reflective about how i'm impacting my partners as a result of my fear as a result of, of my trauma and there's a part of me the the social worker the community organizer and me feels a great deal of shame around, oh, I need to change that automatically. I need to change that right away. And I think rooting that in, again, this idea of we've been rained upon (laughs) since birth and we are saturated with this, that it will take time to change the noise. It will take time to challenge the status quo and that we are all on the journey of awarenesses. And so if you're listening to this and there there are some things that you are identifying as, oh man, that's speaking to me, that this is an opportunity to begin to make some changes and it's not going to happen overnight, but we're going to continue to evolve and get better. And I think also um, the fact that some of the most oppressed people who oppress are are being oppressed, right? In fact, the more oppressed you are, the chances that if you were given the opportunity or if the opportunity arises that you are likely to oppress because it sort of comes down and you do it out of scarcity, you do it out of need for control that was being taken away from you, need for power that you... So I, I think there's also just, you know exactly what you're saying, which is a lot of us are oppressed and uh, oppressors and oppressed at the same time. And that the oppressed communities have a history of oppressing others as, as a result of their oppression. I think we we'll be careful with language too, around like it's much harder for oppressed communities to be the oppressor in this, in the, in, in the true sense, in the true sense of the form. But I, I, I would focus more on just like their wielding of power. Like they're looking, they're looking for ways to reclaim power and it, and it may be really justified in terms of the oppression they've experienced. And so I just want to like honor that there's, we want to be careful with the nuances there. I also want to say that there's some of the this is kind of the two main skills I really encourage non-monogamous folks to learn is trust and self-worth. And both of those things are really hard to build when you've been oppressed um, because there's been inherently untrustworthy systems and systems that question your worth. And so I want to just honor that a lot of the skills required to be non-monogamous are going to require a lot of self-work and support around healing and for oppressors to give you more space to learn to do those, learn to do those things and more time and maybe energy to build that into your dynamic. Um, and so inherently, like as, as a trauma survivor and as somebody who's experienced a lot of that in different ways, it's a lot more work <laughs> to engage in complex relationship dynamics because there's just so much healing to be done and so much repair along the way. So you're giving a lot more space to those who've been oppressed um, to have space for healing. I love that the, the call to the language shift around understanding the distinction between oppression and power and that if we are an oppressed community, it may not be about being the oppressor. So I, I want to even note my own language shift there and around instead yielding whatever pressure we, power we may have in order to maintain our say, sense of safety, in order to maintain our sense of belonging. And so even in these moments, again, I think these conversations are so incredibly valuable because if you, even if you're actively engaged in this work, this is the work that we do all the time. There are so many opportunities for learning, for adjusting, and for really recognizing where we can show up better. 
right right exactly and and that it's a, it's an ongoing practice it's just like you got to allocate that bandwidth and and keep working at it and i think this is going back to what we we're saying about like how, where do you even start like we're in it we work we work at it every day all day talk about it read about it and it's hard for those who don't spend dedicate their their time and energy to it like i think where i'm taking away from this is we just have to have that bandwidth allocated and just keep doing the work you know change the noise like make room for the others in your life listen to what they have to say self-reflect make adjustments um listen to feedback like that's just you're gonna have to have like allocated allocated bandwidth just to do that work and it's just something that needs to be done by everyone yeah, I just want to honor that it's a privileged position to be able to do that work. And so like, it, and if you're just working to survive, you may not have that ability. And so just honoring that if you're going to, if you're entering into a relationship with somebody who has experienced, this is experiencing a lot of oppression, like you're, you may have to do more of the heavy lifting up front to give them space and time and capacity to be engaging with you around that work. And then you may have to be dedicating more of that time as well. So just, and that's another space of acknowledging privilege and power just in access and time. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's kind of exactly where this. I'm I'm so glad you named that because that's kind of where I'm like in my head. I'm like for us, it's okay, but like there are people who, are, you know, are trying to survive, like you said, you know. And this is to kind of say, oh, by the way, here's a bunch of work that you need to do to to so that you're you're not causing any harm, where they can barely put food on the table. I don't know. I had to wrap my head around that. It's a big ask, and I don't think it's available. Like that that kind of self expression and growth, and getting really nuanced understanding of those things, this time and the space required for that is a privilege to have that time and even uh, the resources, I would say. Certainly, but definitely not beyond reach. And I think there's like a, a lot of like poor white America where we're observing that, that, that trend where like they, they need to work harder to do the work to shift out of an ideology that's causing harm to a lot of the world. And so I think that, that we're, we're seeing that. And then there is lots of like really accessible options being created. But I think us knowing that, we have to figure out the best way to communicate this, these ideas. And, um, and, you know, so living in currently in Idaho and in Idaho, there is a very, they're deeply entrenched monogamy and there's almost no community around any kind of diverse sexuality. And, and I should be really cautious not to just assault people with like your monogamy is oppression <laughs> um, because I immediately shut down the conversation. And, and so even if they have the bandwidth for the conversation, they're not investing the time in it because they're immediately feeling on the defensive. And so finding like these nuanced ways that we can approach humans, not in a way that we're justifying their behavior, but in a way that we're making space for their perspective and their, like how challenging it is to shift deeply entrenched ideology. Um, and we're facing it at every level right now. And frankly, the, those shifts don't come from often random conversations. They come through a relationship. And so when you have authentic relationship, friendship, connection with someone, that there's more of a likelihood for them to be able to hear you and you to hear them because you see each other more as as people. And I think that what this conversation also is highlighting is the fact that we need to offer up grace for those who are on the journey and potentially on a different part of the journey of, of doing this work than we are and, and recognizing in seeing each other in, in fullness that some folks may not have the capacity or the bandwidth because of what they're dealing with in their life to do, be doing some of this work. And so for, you know, we talk about this certainly as it relates to non-monogamy, not standing on some soapbox and preaching around how great this is and how evolved we are. And that that is continues to be an important part of the work as we are having conversations and, and reaching across whatever table that is to find alignment with other folks that we really do have grace for wherever people are in this journey and in this conversation. 
having grace, but also not letting them harm other people. So there's kind of this mm-hmm. like <laughs> grace and accountability. Yeah, absolutely right. And I'm both. And again, and going back to what we said earlier, and that when you receive that feedback, that you do so with charitable assumption, believing that the person wants the best of you, and that the shame that you are feeling is not a result of them shaming you, but a result of awareness is that you are having that you that this is a call to action and invitation to change and to grow. An area that you were lacking, which is hard to hear, you know. I feel like, also, especially if you're somebody who's working on this stuff, because then you're like, I, you, you, you have this idea that you're doing all the work, but you, it's not enough, you know. This is tough. This is this is a minefield, you know. I have to say, it feels like a minefield. Yeah, and I think that that just to be direct with you and saying that the, the perception that it's too much is is a, also a position of power, <laughs> is also coming from a voice of power, in that like it's it's a minefield because it is challenging us being the ones who are running the minefield. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We as white people, we as pe- people in positions of power, have been the ones who have created this. In the sense that we've continued to create structures which make it oppressive for people to exist in their full selves, um, and, and all of our structures exacerbate that. And so, while we're dismantling our own internalized oppression, oppression in our relationships, we're also needing to do that at every level of the system, and so that we're eliminating as many of the minefields as possible. And I hear what you're saying, I, I, and Effie too, around that it energy to your point that they they exist everywhere so at every level i think that's what's part of the challenge is that as we are looking at, at work as we're looking at our education system as we're looking at our prison system as we're now looking at our homes that in every space there have been these power dynamics that have been set up and dismantling and disrupting those is a part of work um and i think that there are opportunities for us that there are moments where we may all feel overwhelmed by that and I think what we have been talking about today are small ways in which within the home, within ourselves, within our connections, we can begin that work, which actually translates to bigger ways. And I think I would, I would just encourage folks listening to, to start with really simple questions. Where did you get your idea of love? Where did you get your idea of belonging? Where did your, your ideas around what a relationship structure should look like came from? And if, and if you're not sure, um, go back and think about like, how did you build your foundation around love, relationship, belonging? Um, and those are the starting points to unpacking where you're at and where you want to be. I, I, I'm both sitting here in this moment, like consumed with ideas, like, like energized and exhausted. That's probably the best way that like really, truly my soul is fed by this dialogue and it is continues to be a recognition of how much personal work and community work needs to be done in order for us to move to a place of greater equity. And so I just feel grateful for you, Angie. Every time we talk to you, I, I feel I feel like I have gone through through a semester of, of uh, a course, um, and really have taken. A, there's a lot of takeaways I think for for me in this conversation. So I'm really appreciative. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And I think uh, the workshop that we're doing, you're doing for us next week, is uh, about paradigm shift. And I think that's 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 what we experience every time we chat to you a paradigm shift so <laughs> here's a here's another example of that I just want to encourage folks to like I'm not the only voice and this there's lots of really amazing folks out there and I'll give a, I'll give you guys a resource list that I would encourage of other black and brown brown voices that, that are in this conversation that are really um, I want to uplift and encourage that you hear them as well sure absolutely absolutely that's that's an active ongoing endeavor for us to trying to find different voices different point of views um, we would love I'd love we would love your resources for sure always thank you So um, if you want to continue to explore this conversation and unpack how you can address oppression and inequity in your relationships, join us on Wednesday, July 22nd. Angie will be helping us explore the history of our current relationship constructs and the ways in which those dynamics may impact our options and thriving. We'll be exploring the patterns and stories, the dynamics of power and the relational templates we've been given. Unpack the impact of the past as we, as we seek forgiveness within ourselves and our partnerships. 
explore tools for creating a new paradigm for connection. You can find tickets anywhere on our Facebook page, our Instagram bio, our website, by searching We Are Curious Foxes anywhere you'll find us. And you can see what's coming up as well. And for more about Angie Gunn, you can visit her website at connectivetherapycollective.com and follow her on Instagram and Facebook at Connective Collective Therapy. And you can follow us at We Are Curious Foxes on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. If you're a Patreon member, then depending on the tier that you join, you have access to lots of things. So at any tier, you have access to all of our previous workshops, including the workshop that Angie has done for us around attachment, uh, attachment patterning and sexuality. We have our virtual workshops available. We have the workshops that we have done in person when we were not in quarantine and we were able to see each other in person. And you can do Ask Me Anythings every month with Effie Blue. You can join us for our monthly socials. There are a lot of ways that you continue to connect with us as a community and engage in this conversation through Patreon. And if you've enjoyed the podcast that we encourage you to like, review, and share it, it really does make a difference. Our goal is to hashtag change the noise. That's the topic of conversation today is around changing the noise. And we continue to do that through the Curious Fox podcast. And so please share with others. Please review. Please like. And if you would like to suggest something that we can talk about on the podcast, you can do that in a few different ways. You can certainly find us via social media. You can email us at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com, or you can give us a call and share a story or a question, and we may play it in an upcoming episode along with our response. And you can call us at 201-870-0063. Nice. And until next time, as always, stay curious, stay curious. friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.